In January of 2015, a company revealed a six-story home that they made with a 3D printer. The best way to explain how a 3D printer works is to contrast it with a typical printer that uses ink to print on a sheet of paper. The thickness of the ink is so infinitesimally small that if you held the paper up to your face, you likely wouldn't be able to see any elevation of ink on the printed area of the page. Now imagine if the printer used a thicker type of ink and printed on that sheet of paper not just once, but in multiple layers over the same area. Eventually, the inked area would become raised. If you used a different printing material other than ink and you altered the printer's instructions to achieve a certain height, you might eventually be able to print something like a plastic bowl. That's how 3D printing works. And the options of materials and instructions you can use to print are only limited by your imagination. <music> 3D printing is currently an explosive field where lots of entrepreneurs have trained their sites. Already we have 3D printers that make toys, apparel, even car parts. How about 3D printing to make a home? The same company that used the 3D printer to make that six-story home in 2015 had a year earlier made 10 standalone one-story houses with a 3D printer from construction waste and cement. Although I must tell you that I wasn't at all impressed by the video I saw of the 3D printed home on YouTube. The company that made these homes basically rigged a giant squirt gun to repeatedly squirt layer after layer of cement in a pattern that ended up forming the walls of each house. If 3D printing is going to revolutionize the construction industry, it certainly won't happen with this implementation. Nonetheless, I wanted to speak to the inventor of this 3D printing technology to see how this technology might be used more effectively in the future. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the fifth episode in a series about my prediction that in the near future, a majority of our homes will be built in factories. In the last episode, I spoke with American apartment builders to understand their ambitious agendas and what's currently holding back modular construction from taking off in the United States. In this episode, I'll explore how the use of 3D printing technology has the potential to transform building construction. I'll also talk with one of the foremost experts on automobile manufacturing to explore how I might apply all the learnings from the automotive industry to construct the ultimate home building factory. This podcast is sponsored by DigitalOcean, a cloud platform company that is simplifying infrastructure for software developers. Thousands of startups have selected DigitalOcean because of how easy it is to get up and running with their platform. As you scale, DigitalOcean will scale with you. If you're a startup, apply for DigitalOcean's Hatch program, where if selected, you'll have access to their cloud for 12 months, in addition to technical training and mentorship. You can also go to do.co forward slash predicting our future and ask the sales team for a free trial. Baroque Koshnevis is a professor of industrial and systems engineering at the University of Southern California. He patented the contour crafting system that seems to have been sloppily implemented to 3D print the house in the YouTube video. Baroque has no relationship with the company that built those homes. 
if you really want to see the future of construction, you have to listen to how 3D printing would work in the most ideal circumstances. What I'm about to discuss is out of this world, literally. Baroque is currently working with NASA to use 3D printers to build structures on Mars. I approached NASA uh, with a proposal to use the lunar and Martian institute material and build the structures. So, um, as opposed to all the uh, proposed methods of taking stuff from here and building stuff uh, on those planets, I recommended a much more viable approach. If there is a technology that can use what is out there, of course, it would be economically much more attractive. The extraterrestrial approach would be you would transport the 3D printer, if you will, and the associated materials. This was a pretty stupid question. Prior to speaking with Baroque, I hadn't given any thought to the business of building structures on the moon or Mars. But obviously, if you're going to start construction there and you want to build out of concrete, you wouldn't bring the concrete from Earth. Concrete is made from sand or some type of gravel, water, and cement. So if it's possible to get the sand or gravel from space, why carry it with you from our planet? Institute materials. Use whatever is on, moon, on the moon and whatever is on Mars and build with those. And I demonstrated that that can be done. We built... Uh, pretty, uh, you know, strong structures uh, with the material that is out there. We made some kind of concrete without using water. That's fascinating. So, in other words, the rover would go to the moon, collect sand or some other raw material, and then somehow or another, either through human intervention or through robots, would feed that sand into this 3D printing device and, and build. Yeah, exactly. So there won't be any humans involved. While Baroque's research for 3D printing in space is currently funded by a grant from NASA, he has also been contacted by SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, that is currently planning an unmanned mission to Mars for 2018 about how his technology might be used to build a colony there. But what was really interesting for me was to hear Baroque talk about sending the 3D printers to space to print buildings, not just for Mars, but also for here on Earth. When I got my first grant from NASA and uh, I made the first demonstrations. The first people that came to see me were people from SpaceX, actually. They were especially interested in Martian applications. Later on, as I made more progress, uh, I've been contacted by a number of, number of other commercial space entities. Right now, we have a few of them, actually that are interested in mining in space, are interested in fabricating in space, uh, are interested in space tourism. SpaceX has this idea that they're going to create a colony that'll be habitable, but why, why would people be interested in fabricating in space other than for a colony? I believe probably the biggest part of space resources that we will get in the coming years, uh, in decades, starting from maybe 20 years from now, is fabrication space. Probably in 50 years, our capability to manufacture in space will be millions of times bigger than what it is on Earth. You can imagine what humanity can do with that capability. Why? Because space offers free resources. The solar power is out there, 
very strong without any inhibition by atmosphere. You have abundance of material, all kinds of materials, if you get your hands on the asteroid belt. President Obama mentioned uh, early on in his administration the first time, the focus on asteroids as having the highest potential, the space. So of course, it's a NASA mandate as well to tap on the resources that asteroids offer. So imagine you are in a space. You have free energy, you have free material. All it takes from that point on are robotic systems that are capable of using those materials and building objects that you design on Earth and you beam them out there to them. And if these robotic systems are capable of self-replicating, besides building uh, objects that you want, they will be capable of replicating themselves. Then it is really like a synthetic analog of biological evolution on Earth. Plus, they will have machine learning capabilities. They will learn a lot of themselves on their own. So in few generations, there will be extremely capable machines that are out there. This species, are they in orbit or are they resident on a meteor? Are they resident on a planet and then they're abstracting materials they need from the meteor belt and then going back into orbit? How, does, how, how do I visualize that? Some of them, like the systems that we are designing, of course, in collaboration with NASA, are going to be based on Moon and Mars, like the systems that are supposed to build the infrastructure elements, the landing pads, roads, hangars shade walls and later on habitats uh, are going to be of course designed to survive in the lunar martian condition and and operate there but a lot of those fabricators that i told you would be floating in space like the space station international space station they would be capable of attaching themselves to asteroids and taking the materials from them and building stuff and maybe building another space station or whatever. So there will be all kinds of them. I think if you look out far enough into the future, a growing number of buildings will be constructed by 3D printers. Houses might be built on site in a matter of hours by giant 3D printers that hover over a location and print using concrete or some other cementitious material, moving to the next construction site once each building is complete. Or houses might be built by 3D printers that live in a factory, and then their finished modules will be shipped to the site to be assembled with cranes, like stacking oversized Legos. Or maybe, according to Baroque, the 3D printers will live in space and fabricate buildings on other planets to eventually be transported back to Earth. But over the next 10 years, I wouldn't expect giant 3D printers building housing modules on construction sites. What I do believe is that a significantly larger number of buildings will be made in factories. While most of the home building factories that I came across, particularly in Pennsylvania, involved old fashioned assembly lines of men and women, the factories of tomorrow will likely be automated and driven by robots. Almost every company that is involved in prefabricated housing proudly displays a video on their site or on YouTube where you can see how an assembly line operates inside of their factory. If you're inclined to watch, look up any of the companies I've spoken with and you can see how their manufacturing process works. In many cases, you'll see an assembly line of people working inside a giant building, cutting wood, constructing walls, 
and then using cranes to move the walls into place to create large modules or boxes. It doesn't look all that different from what you might see on a job site where a house is built entirely in the field. Many of the people who have written about the advent of factory-built housing have suggested that it needs to function more like the auto industry if it's going to move into the 21st century. So with my mission to imagine the future of the construction industry, I took a slight detour and began to look at automobile manufacturing to learn what could be applied to the home-building industry. What I found was not only the factory of the future, but the ecosystem necessary to support it. I reached out to the heads of manufacturing for Ford, GM, and Chrysler. They didn't seem to have much interest in using their knowledge of manufacturing vehicles to fabricate housing, or at least they didn't have much interest in sharing with me how they would go about attempting such an endeavor. Instead, I spoke with Jeffrey Liker, professor of engineering at the University of Michigan. Jeffrey is an expert on automobile factory production with a specific emphasis on Toyota. He's written nine books on how Toyota has mastered factory production to produce cars more efficiently and cost-effectively than any other automobile manufacturer. All of the interviews I've conducted as part of this series are available for listening directly from our website. If there's only one you have time to listen to in its entirety, this should be it. I came into the interview with a very clear sense of what I wanted to know, and Jeffrey made clear that I was asking all the wrong questions. Assume that the audience here really has no concept of what robotics manufacturing... Robotics is, is kind of the least... That's the easiest part of the equation. It's not really the, the emphasis. Your image of an automated factory is a very limited image. Assume you're speaking to the most primitive of, of audiences and you were to introduce a layperson, someone with my primitive knowledge of what is involved in a modern automotive factory. Quick background and then on you and then... Give me that, what a, an automotive factory looks like today. I had framed the discussion as a time continuum, beginning with when the first materials are fabricated inside of the factory and ending with a car rolling out the doors. Jeff wanted me to think of the time continuum as beginning much earlier in Toyota's production process, first with the design of the car, then to the construction of the machines that would make the car, next to an automaker's management of its supply chain, and then finally onto the work that went on inside the factory. Even the language I used to describe the process was wrong. I asked him about auto manufacturing, and he kept urging me to use the phrase lean production in its place. It was in all the areas that I hadn't considered that Toyota truly excelled. Here was Jeff's explanation of lean production. First, it starts with an artist who has a pencil and paper, and they make lots of sketches. Then they pick some sketches and they make small clay models that are painted and they look like the outside of the car. And they're shown to lots of people, including executives, and they begin to select what they like. And then they make full-scale clay models and they have a competition. And then finally they pick one. In, in that case, if you were to, walk, to stand, say, 10 yards from a clay model, you'd think it was a real car. That uh, clay body, is then scanned digitally. So now in CAD, they have a 3D, uh, well, a surface model, they call it. Then they take that and they generate what would become the cutting paths, for example, uh, for the car body. And they make dies out of that. And then the dies will stamp out the parts. So there's hundreds of engineers who are, who are then uh, adjusting the computer-aided design database 
They actually can take the clay model and they can put it into wind tunnels and they can test, they can calculate the coefficient of drag, which is how the air flows across it. So by that time, they want the car to look like that clay model and get as close as they can. And a die, how do we think of what that word means? Is that a mold? A cookie cutter. So think about if you had a cookie cutter and it was positioned within this huge rectangle of metal steel that's 20 tons and you have a bottom and a top and then they come together and they squeeze the steel and then you open it up and you have a door just like you'd have a cookie. Toyota needs to control every phase in the time continuum that I spoke about previously, beginning with the design to the fabrication of parts through the final assembly of the car. Most companies just acquire equipment. Toyota's a little bit different in that they work very closely with the outside equipment vendors. They will actually modify the design of the equipment, and then they'll go to vendors and say, here, do this. Typically, the way a company exerts control in its supply chain is through what is called vertical integration. A company is said to be vertically integrated when it owns or at least controls all the different disciplines and stages associated with the construction of a product. Toyota is able to assert its control over suppliers without formally owning them through a complicated cross-sharing ownership structure that is common in Japan. We have what they call the Keiretsu, which is collections of companies. They're kind of famous for that. And they have in their collection of companies that they they work very closely together. They have these vendors make equipment and they have suppliers that make parts of the car. Like someone is designing the uh, engine control module in combination with Toyota develop, developing the engine and someone is developing the exhaust system muffler. And all, all the other companies use outside suppliers, but Toyota's suppliers are very close-knit. Their biggest customer is Toyota. So when we talk about supply chain management, you're including vendors and suppliers. And, and how far back are you going? So if, if a car has light gauge steel or aluminum, how far back does Toyota go? Either an ownership interest or part of the Koretsu? They use an analogy like an organizational chart, like a hierarchy. So they have what they call tiers. And the top tier, the top of the organizational chart is Toyota. And the next tier are the suppliers of big systems who directly ship to Toyota and they do the design work. For example, uh, they'll buy, they call it HVAC, uh, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning system. They'll buy that from a company like Denso is their largest outside supplier. They'll buy the whole HVAC system from Denso and Denso will design it working with Toyota engineers and they'll end up building it and then sending it as a module to the Toyota factory. I was thinking ahead to what my ideal company in the business of constructing housing modules might look like. Would this hypothetical company frame its modules from wood? Would it need to own the forest or the lumber mill to be vertically integrated? I asked Jeff if Toyota owned the iron ore mine from which originated the iron that was smelted into steel that was used in their automobiles. The iron ore factory is outside of the, and the steel suppliers are outside of that Koretsu. So anything that's a raw material, unprocessed and not customized, any of those, those basic raw material suppliers would be outside. If you really want to know where Toyota most excels and is able to wring out the greatest cost savings, it's in how they manage every stage in production, from design to procuring materials to manufacturing. 
Toyota prides itself. They, their focus is on short lead time and very little inventory. That's the just-in-time system. So they'll only have enough stamped coils for a few hours, three or four hours, and they'll only have enough car bodies for the next uh, hour or so. And you know, as you go through the system, there's very little, in, relatively little inventory between processes. So they have a flow of material continuously, and they're constantly bringing in product from suppliers. In some cases, it's 14 times a day. Now, it used to be in the American companies, they would bring in product once a week. Often, Toyota's factories are compared to a professional orchestra where everybody's got to be perfectly in sync with the conductor or everything falls apart and stops. With every answer Jeff gave, I tried to imagine how that might apply to building a new factory for housing modules. Toyota's factories are enormous, churning out 300,000 to 400,000 cars per year. Were mega factories the future for modular housing? Did Toyota want to build still larger factories for producing automobiles? I framed the question to Jeff this way. If there were no tariffs in the world and no political pressure, just the cost of shipping, would it be more efficient for Toyota to be producing everything in one central location as opposed to having factories all over the world? No, it, because of the just-in-time system, location is everything. So their philosophy is build the product as close as possible to the customers. So they want to build American cars in America, and they want as much of the supply chain in America as possible. Anytime you have to bring something from Japan, it's going to sit for a week in a, in a boat. First, Jeff and I talked about automobile production as a role model for factory-built housing. And then we talked about an industry I hadn't considered, shipbuilding. There's an interesting analog about how a modular apartment building is constructed with cranes stacking apartment modules one on top of another, and how a cruise ship is built with cranes stacking cabins one on top of another. When I visited the Japanese shipyards, they were much more like Toyota in, in that they had flow. They would have the ship coming together modularly. You know, uh, this concept of modular, you know, almost with Legos, you know, have these different parts that you build up and then they come together. They were doing that uh, even with suppliers. For example, the engine room comes floating on a barge up the river just as it's needed to attach it to the ship. As I studied the capability required in Japan to do this modular work, they had a much higher capability. I also spoke about this comparison with Michele Francovia, a lead project engineer at Fincaceri, the fourth largest shipbuilder in the world located in Italy. Like Toyota, Fincaceri uses a vertically integrated design and construction process to build cruise ships. They fabricate their own steel and have the ship's cabins made by their wholly owned subsidiary, Marine Interiors. You can hear Michele's entire interview on the Predicting the Future website. If you're wondering whether the learnings from Toyota could be applied to factory-built housing, you don't really need to wonder because Toyota has been building houses in Japan since 1975. In fact, they sell over 5,000 homes a year priced between $200,000 and $800,000, depending upon the model you select. The lean production method we just discussed, well, they apply that to their home building business as well. Like the Japanese shipbuilders, they actually have to design the house so it's modular, and they have to think about how much work is involved 
for a specific module. And you see what you see in the factory are rooms of a house that are moving down a conveyor. And you'll see a kitchen followed by a bathroom, followed by a bedroom. And they're all different and they all have different things being assembled into them. And the rooms are not constrained by the size of a flatbed truck. They can weld multiple pieces of a room on site. Is that right? Uh, no, they're, they're constrained by a flatbed truck. So each room is going to go on its own truck. If you find land, you have to excavate like you would here and to build a foundation. And then your house comes on a bunch of trucks and the trucks are coming in sequence. And then they're just putting the rooms one by one. You're lining them up, putting them on top of each other and attaching and, and constructing the house on site. It only takes a few days to build a house. And is it Toyota's people that pour the foundation, excavate, pour the foundation, grade the property? Yeah, that's part of their company. I asked Jeff for his predictions about the future of factory-built housing in the United States. I think to the extent that the modules are built in the factory and the extent to which you can actually make it flow like an assembly line, the construction will be cheaper, better quality, and quicker, faster. And would the market that you would target be high-rise apartments? It would probably be specialized. Like Typically, you would not see, even in Toyota, you would see a plant that makes trucks on frames, and that's all they do is make trucks on frames, and a different plant that makes cars and small sport utility vehicles. So I'd imagine that the market for high-rises would be different than the market for individual housing or for say, smaller office buildings. So there would be, it'd probably be a segmented market. After speaking with Jeff, I had a window into what a lean production process might look like for manufacturing homes. My new goal was to identify factories that were currently engaged in using this process and also to identify manufacturers of machinery used in these types of factories. With this information, I hope to learn how to construct the most modern and efficient home-building factory. Tune in to the next episode of Predicting Our Future to hear what the process looks like to construct an automated home-building factory, as well as my conclusions about when we can expect to see this gigantic industry challenged by upstart entrepreneurs with the right mix of crazy ambition and sufficient capitalization. If you'd like to learn more about the companies featured in this podcast, as well as a few additional companies that I interviewed, go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and all the interviews in their entirety. This is Predicting Our Future.